Everything is a miss in my, in, in my world right now. Well, not a miss, different. Just your world? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so first of all, uh, Aaron is uh, having an outdoor socially distant book club meeting right now. So there's a very slim chance I might need to run away during the recording. But more pertinently... Wait, to go like give your thoughts on the book? Yeah, exactly right. No, in case one of the kids wakes up, which is extremely rare for them. But ne- you never know what could happen. What, what did you think was the theme of the book? Yeah, I don't even remember what book it was she was reading. But nevertheless, I don't even remember what themes mean. <laughs> but more pertinently, uh, as Marco better than anyone knows, I have had very sporadic problems with my genuinely beloved USB Pre Two, and every great once in a while, it will. I I I, I can't figure out a, a more descriptive technical term than glitch out, which is neither descriptive nor technical. But every every great once in a while, it'll glitch out to the point that the only way to get it to work properly is to unplug it and then plug it back in, like take out the USB connector and plug it back in, which in of itself, from my perspective, is not a big deal because it takes all but a moment for everything to write itself and everything's you know good to go. But from Marco's perspective, it is a very, very different discussion because everything becomes two to three to four to five times harder. And so we have been talking about this, Marco and I, on and off over God knows how long. And somebody, I don't think it was Marco, but somebody had said, uh, you know, I had, uh, this somebody says, I had a bunch of XLR cables and the USB cable kind of all intertwined with each other. And perhaps some sort of interference has caused that issue, or caused a similar issue. And I don't think that's actually the problem. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not the problem, but in an effort to make Marco's life ever so slightly easier, those you know handful of times each year that this happens, I have taken my uh, my microphone and shifted it from the right side of the desk to the left, which is like sleeping on the wrong side of the bed. Everything is backwards now. I don't know what to do with it. And the reason I did that is because on the USB Pre 2, the USB comes in on the right-hand side, the XLR cables come in on the left-hand side, and so my thought was I will move all the XLR stuff to the left-hand side of the desk. It had previously been on the right. Leave the USB stuff on the right-hand side of the desk, which is to say it's like a three-foot USB-C to USB-whatever cable, and never the two shall meet. And I don't know if it's going to make a darn bit of difference. Smart Money says it won't, but I'm trying. Yeah, I'm going to guess no on that. Uh, Same <laughs> Which here. is funny. I actually, today was uh, desk reconstruction day for me. Oh, interesting. So both of us then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was mine was for a different reason. I, I'm, you know, at the beach, had to get a desk, and I got like basically I made the wrong choice on on a certain type of frame, and it was the kind of frame that like it it frames the desk on on the front and back underneath with metal framing, so that way your leg hits the front, oh, like your knee hits the metal framing because it isn't only like in the midsection or back the way they usually do it with like the little U shaped legs. And because my 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 thinking was, I don't I don't like how most desks that have like the like T or kind of offset T or C shaped legs, if you tap the front lip of the desk the whole thing kind of rocks a little bit. And like your screen might even vibrate or shake with every tap that you make. And I thought this is, you know, not ideal. I had like, you know, some inexpensive Ikea desk before that that did this. So I thought, let me get a four-legged desk that should ideally solve this problem. Instead of just having like the two C-shaped or T-shaped ones, if you just have four legs, then it should make it much more stable. And it turns out it did. It it worked in that sense, that it, it, it was indeed way more stable and it was basically like a rock you could tap it and like your screen wouldn't shake at all downside was that it had it had that like 
rectangular, fully rectangular frame that my legs would hit constantly. And literally every single time I like approached and tucked under the desk, every single time I hit my knee on that thing, <laughs> observant listeners might say, why don't you just raise the desk? Good question. In fact, it was a standing desk, so I could raise it to whatever height I wanted. The problem is, if you raise the desk like an extra two inches, the keyboard's too tall, and it's bad for ergonomics. So, because ideally, what you want is a zero thickness desk. Like I know it's not you know realistic, but you want the thinnest possible desk. That way, you can have enough space under it for your legs and maybe a bent knee or two. But you don't want the keyboard to be higher than it needs to be. You basically want to be like you want the desk to be as thin as possible, so that you can a- achieve that ergonomic and comfort ideal. Keyboard tray. Lisa needs braces. <laughs> keyboard tray. <laughs> How does a keyboard tray not make this problem mostly worse? I mean, it gives you a specific plane just for your keyboard that is lower than your desk. So you could get the desk up out of the way and still have the keyboard at maximum like lowness to your legs, essentially, without you hitting whatever. I, I don't, I'm trying to visualize what the structure of your, of your desk looks like, but if it's just like a bar that sticks out from the bottom of your desk a couple of inches, this would get it out of your way because you would raise the desk so that the bar is clearing, but the keyboard tray is, you know, it's like two or three inches down. And lots of keyboard trays are adjustable in height so that it can be any number of inches away from the bottom surface of your desk. And then you'd sort of arrange those two things independently. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess I see what you mean. I, I, but, but, the, but the key feature of the keyboard tray is it clears, it gives you a big spot in your desk to put stuff. And that is the main reason. I mean, obviously I do it for ergonomics because I bought my desk before standing desks were really popular and my desk does not adjust at all, right? Um, but I, I would never be able to give up having just empty desk space in front of me where I can put things. Well, how deep of a desk do you run? Cause like there's basically, you know, there's like, you know, the, the 24 inch class and the 30 inch class that, of, of depth that tend to be widely available. Maybe I'm at 36. I can't even reach the back of my desk. Deep. Yeah. It's very deep. Oh my God. Yeah. Like I, I, I tried the 24s like in, in previous, you know, beach arrangements you know, like, oh, i'll get something small because it's just vacation um and i kn- i was never happy with 24s <laughs> even like in previous apartments like where i didn't have a lot of space i, I would occasionally have a 24 inch desk I- it was never enough depth for me and so I- i've i've been 30 for a while now and i, I have no regrets but uh but yeah, anyway so i didn't think of keyboard tray i, I still don't think that's, that's my style uh i do like a very clean basic look uh minimalist kind of kind of arrangement here so anyway i uh had to switch from the four-legged desk which is now now being repurposed uh, as a workbench in a different location and now i have a two-legged desk once again and the the wobbliness is back but it is less severe than the inexpensive ikea desk and anyway i had to redo everything and so to get back to how i brought this up in a very roundabout way sorry casey (laughs) i i too (laughs) during during my desk rearrangement i had an issue uh, with my audio interface, I was getting electrical noise in my recordings, and I did all sorts of stuff. I plugged in different things, tried different cables, tried tried different arrangements, different settings. I even eventually tried a whole different interface to the microphone, and I was still getting this electrical noise in my in my recordings. And I eventually traced it back. It took it took me like almost a whole day to figure out the problem. <laughs> I eventually traced it to one of the cables I was using was running it was it was it had some excess and i i had coiled up the excess so there was like a small bundle of xlr cable and i had tucked it in a spot on the underside of the desk that ran next to a network cable 
Mm. And apparently, the it, there it was getting interference from the network cable running past a bundle of XLR cable. Because you know when you bundle it up, it basically passes the same cable like you know five or six times at least. So any any interference potential is probably amplified, right? And XLR cables are inherently balanced, and they actually do a really good job of rejecting lots of noise. But apparently, not the kind of noise that running a perpendicular network cable past it generates. And literally, this whole day I was I was spending trying to get my interface to not have noise on it. And I literally had to just move this bundle of cable like four inches away <laughs> from where it was, and the problem disappeared completely. <laughs> Analog electronics suck. Indeed, yeah. we learned as the reason we invented digital. Just tell me if it's a one or a zero. Lots of leeway there. <laughs> Analog is a go. Every little thing that changes my signal. Uh. Well, and it was going to the box that does that, but it has to be analog at some point. Oh, I know. But it's, you want to be, I feel like uh, in the computer world, at least in my computer world, I want the analog stuff to be as short as possible, right? Stay digital as long as you can. Stay gold, pony boy. Stay digital signal. And then, yes, it's inevitably at some point it needs to become analog for our human brains to hear it and for human mouths to influence it but then get right back into digital as fast as you can and you're, you had analog stuff just swirling in circles underneath your desk underneath the network cable yeah that was that was a big mistake turns out but i have rectified the issue and with my new desk setup i not only have my knee not hitting the frame because it's the right kind of frame now again but i also did a total like organizational change where um, I actually, I'm very happy with it. this new desk, the one that's not four-legged. I will, I will pimp the company. It's an uplift desk. I'm very happy with their cable management stuff that's under the desk. I, I got a uh, surge strip that mounts under the desk, and it mounts so that the plugs don't face down; they face back, so they don't intrude in, in the foot space. Because I'm also like, I'm a, I'm a like subwoofer footrest person now, <laughs> I, so I, I don't want a lot of stuff hanging down from the desk. Because then when I lean back and put my feet on the subwoofer, my feet will hit the cords and possibly pull them out. Is that because your feet don't reach the ground? Mm. So anyway. <laughs> no, it's just an adorable image I have in my head of your little swinging your feeties while you, while you program. <laughs> no, part of the reason that I, um, that I have a standing desk is not necessarily because I frequently raise and lower it. It's because I can set a standing desk to a lower height than most fixed leg desks. Almost all fixed leg desks are either they are like some of the IKEA adjustable ones, which, again, I've been using those for years, but I wanted something a little more sturdy, a little more heavy duty. But almost everything that's not IKEA is a fixed height, and it makes the desk roughly 29 inches tall. And that is too tall for me. My my preferred setting on the uplift desk is 27.4. It's like an inch and a half lower than almost all regular desks have as their fixed height and that because what i want is for my feet to be resting on the ground at regular sitting height so like you could just jack the chair up be it be at full height and have your feet dangling at the bottom or you can get a desk that you can set at the right height so your feet can be on the floor and then you can lower the desk to meet you so that's that's the biggest reason i have a standing desk is 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 to have easy precise control over the actual desktop height and occasionally to, to raise it to stand it up and it's also really nice if you are going under it to like wire something it's really nice to lift it up first and go under it while it's in the high position so much easier to do stuff under there anyway i've been very impressed with uplift and their and this desk and uh, all the cable management stuff i did something similar to casey where i have like you know all the analog stuff is now on one side of the desk and on the other side of the desk 
I, I actually had previously had another issue with analog interference with one of those big like mid cable power supply things where you have like the three prong cable to the blob and then blob to a DC cable to the device that those big bricks or even or, you know, the wall warts that go directly on the outlets. Um, those are frequently the source of interference if you run analog cables near them because they're usually pieces of crap <laughs> and they have lots of interference components in them. And so what, what I have now is the like the left side of the underside of my desk has a giant has a giant uh, mounted surg strip on the underside of the desk. There's a big like cable management like rectangle blob thing that can hold up a bunch of stuff. So I put all the power adapters for everything in there, and that's all on the left side. And then all the audio cables, all the analog stuff is on the right side of the desk. And they have these cool magnetic channel things that you can stick to the legs and run the cables down them. It's so great. Anyway, I'm a big fan of, of the Uplift desk, so, and, and in particular their cable management stuff. And honestly, this is the nicest standing desk I've ever used, like with the control panel and everything. It's, I haven't used that many. I've used, I think, four now. But it's a very nice one. So I can hardly recommend Uplift. They're not a sponsor. I'm just recommending them. And uh, yeah. Anyway, but but don't get the four-legged one. The four-legged one is not at all the right idea for <laughs> for leg comfort. Sturdy as it was, uh, not the right idea for leg comfort. Get the get the C-leg. Yeah, they, they have a four-legged standing desk. That's what I'm looking at. It has a glass top, too. So maybe Casey would like it. Or is it a glass top? Or is that just showing me a transparent top where you can pick your material? There is a frame-only option. But don't get the four-leg one if you care about the knee comfort thing like I do. It was incredibly strong but i'm going to be uh yeah that's that's being repurposed as a standing workstation like in like the garage area where we can like you know use it as a workbench yeah my one complaint about the the traditional now traditional standing desk because we you know over the past few years my work back when we went to the office like everything was converted to these standing desks that look a lot like these i guess they all kind of look the same but you know similar design is the stupid control panel uh that sort of is on an angle on the right or left side uh and it sticks down a little bit which isn't that big a deal and it makes sense like well where else would you put it but in an office environment where very often well you're given it's kind of like having cubicles but no cubicles i think i've described this scenario before when you had a cubicle at least you had walls that defined your tiny little veal pen that you spend your day in (laughs) an open office plan you don't have the walls so if you want any space for yourself you have to claim it somehow (laughs) and like Part of part of that is if you have any kind of furniture, like a, a usually like a rolling two drawer filing cabinet where you can put stuff. You have to fit that within your little claimed area, and one way to do that is to take some piece of furniture and slide it under one side of your desk. And like you said, Marco, like being able to lower the desk down is important, especially if you don't have a keyboard tray. But if you do that, then that little that one stupid little control panel makes it so you can't slide the the filing cabinet underneath it or you can slide it but now it's trapped and one of the drawers hits it and i just i just wish those controls were flush or something or movable or whatever they just there was it always annoyed me that no matter what style of standing desk we got the controls were always like that and always on the wrong side that you wanted them on like oh i wanted my filing cabinet left well that's where the controls are so tough luck you got to put it on the right well this one you you you, you have to assemble the desk and when you assemble it you can pick either side to put the control panel on you have to be in the union to assemble the desk in our in, in the working world <laughs> Sorry, you can't assemble the desk yourself. No, I, I I would go in there in off hours with I'd bring my power drill and a bunch <laughs> of stuff and just oh my goodness. like when no one's in the office, I'd just be under there. You know, I ma- I mounted my own keyboard tray on a succession of desks by drilling the holes myself when nobody was in the office. 
I just thought about that the other day. I wonder what my desk is like. I think I left a pair of my headphones there. I think I left a pair of headphones that you gave me as a present at one point. I think those are still in the office. I should go back <laughs> and claim them. Speaking of what headphones are you using tonight? Still the old ones. I have. I got. Uh, I did place some orders for new pads. One of the orders came, not the one, not the real one that I eventually got the right one that Marco recommended. I, I messed this up. This is my fault. So when I when I was speaking in the episode. I gave the part number for the good pads as EDT-1770. It's actually EDT-1770D. I gave the right one in the show notes. I caught this error like as I was running the sh- as I was checking the show notes, and I, I corrected it in the show notes, but the audio, so like the number I said out loud was wrong. So sorry, anybody who ordered the wrong one. Uh, hopefully you... Me? Yeah. John was one of those people, so yeah, I owe John like 36 euros. Yeah. Well, anyway, I ordered the right one, and who knows what's going to come because it's out of stock, but I also ordered like a knockoff... Uh... It's like fake leather plus memory foam, and they're not really the right size for the 1770s, but they fit because, you know, these things are loosey-goosey, you know. So I put them on today. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to switch over to them. I'm still wearing the old ones for now, but they're they're ready to go. Maybe I'll try them out next episode. We'll see. Well, we should start with a final uh, check on what the status is with the St. Jude uh, uh, fundraiser. And if you recall, we've been talking about this all month because September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. As we record, it is still, strictly speaking, September for another couple of hours. So, hey, if you wanted to just eke in right at the nick of time, feel free to go to stjude.org slash ATP. Uh, But I wanted to genuinely thank everyone for having um, sent so much money to St. Jude. It is really incredible how much money they and we raised and the original goal was three hundred and fifteen thousand dollars, which is not something you know, not something to shake your stick at. That's that's a serious amount of money. Uh, and as of nine eighteen in the evening uh, tonight, which is Wednesday the thirtieth of September, four hundred forty five thousand nine hundred seventy five dollars and three cents, which is ridiculous. I am extremely proud of the ATP and Relay communities. Thank you to anyone who has donated. Uh, it is worth noting that uh, did we do we still have the new leader on the leaderboard as far as I'm aware? The uh, very large leader? Yes. So someone who wrote their name as for Evelyn, I am not kidding, as of the time we are recording anyway, we, we believe this to be valid, donated $50,000, which is absurd and incredible and Oh my goodness. So if you happen to be that person and want to send me a receipt, I will send you stickers and something else. I don't even know what, but I'll find something and send it your way. And to be clear, we don't actually know if this was an ATP listener or a relay listener. Yeah, they didn't They didn't use an asterisk, which from this point forward will be the way that people will indicate they're an ATP listener. So <laughs> right. no asterisk in the name makes us assume that maybe it's just a very generous person who came in through the main relay fund drive. But right. if by chance you are an ATP listener and you want some stickers, $50,000 will do it. That is that is the low low cost of a handful of ATP stickers. Do you, do you think maybe that, maybe that might buy two handfuls? Maybe, yeah. Actually, we can we can probably arrange that. Uh, but but really, thank you to everyone who donated. Uh, we all all three of us and in the, the broader you know relay community all really 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 appreciate it. And it is very kind of you. And we will stop badgering about badgering you about this until next year. Yep. See you next year. Five hundred k next year. We're going to do it. We can do it. All right. Uh, Anonymous writes in on some thoughts with regard to Sony's digital versus plastic disc profits. John, take it away. This is in regards to the discussion the past couple of weeks about digital versus uh, optical disc games and the, the 
different profits that the uh, game makers and Sony may or may not make, depending on what the retailer cut and the different prices of the consoles and all that good stuff. This is, you know, this is an anonymous source who presumably would know. Um, this source says, when developers press optical discs, Sony makes them use its own factories and pay for shipping, paper printing, etc. So all the overhead gets passed on to the developers. After that, digital or disc, Sony still gets 30%. This reminds me of the old cartridge days when Nintendo would always make you pay for Nintendo to manufacture the cartridge for you. So they got some profit margin on the manufacturing of the game, then they sold the game, and then they got some margin on that because you have to pay Nintendo as a percentage of your game sales. So what this is saying is that Sony makes you... Use Sony factories to make the optical discs, and of course, Sony gets a profit on that. They don't do it for you at cost, um, which potentially makes the disc games more profitable than digital. And this person is also saying that whether it's digital or not, Sony still takes thirty percent. And so, I guess it's just the developer and the retailer fighting it out for the remaining seventy percent. Um, so it's not so it's not entirely clear, at least in the case of Sony, who presumably has large factories that make optical discs whether or not digital is actually more profitable for Sony than the uh, plastic versions. It also sounds a lot like the uh, record business, like back in like the the awful Mm -hmm. peak of it in the 90s where like they just, I I don't know if they still do this, I assume they do, but it's just less relevant now. But like, you know, all the the things they would charge the bands for like producing the CDs and everything, like they really would just destroy, like just screw the bands over at every possible angle. Um, This sounds a lot like that. Like, you know, just Sony just... And, and I I don't think this is exclusive to Sony. Like I I think this this kind of thing has always been commonplace in the game industry, like in the game console industry. Um, but yeah, it just it just seems like they uh, they just screwed the developer at every possible opportunity. The difference is in this case that Sony like sort of legitimately has a reason to own optical disc factories, right? Like I'm certain, like in Microsoft's case, they would say, oh well, Microsoft has to pay someone to make optical discs, and then they pass that cost on to the developer. But in this case, Sony already has factories making optical discs for its other businesses, and so it's like, look, we already own the factory, so we're gonna, we we're going to make our profit the way we, you know, the, the person I think the person who sent this tip said described it as uh, Sony getting its customers to pay to keep the lights on in its factories because. Uh, if, if someone isn't manufacturing optical discs and those factories are not making any money and optical discs have become much less popular, uh, the one place they're still kind of hanging on, like they're pretty much out of favor in music, but in video games, it's kind of their last last stronghold, although obviously that's slowly shifting to digital. Moving along, uh, Google's carbon-free nope, nope, plant. No, you got to skip back on. I, was, I figured you'd loop back, but you didn't. What? You skipped a uh, shorty right above the Dave Mays thing. Ah, oh, fluffers. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> fluffers. What? Oh, sorry. That's a that's a listism. It because I could be saying I can't say. <laughs> did you get some fluffers in your sleepy shirt? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I guess I did. So the 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 see, here we go. The etymology is that the word I'm looking for. The the history of this is that I can't swear like a sailor in front of my children, even though that's my natural. Um, state of being. And so uh, we, Aaron and I both, I don't know which one of us came out with this first, but we started saying fluffernutters, which I think is actually a sandwich, if I'm not mistaken. Sure but is. It, it sounds vaguely like it, or at least it has that nice satisfying F in the in the beginning. And so we would say, oh, fluffernutters, and that would be kid-friendly. And then that got shortened to, oh, fluffers. And so that is... Which is not as kid-friendly, but the kids don't know that, and apparently neither do you and Aaron. <laughs> oh, oh, God, what am I what am I walking no, into right now? Don't worry about it. Oh, God. So, so uh, and other possible alternatives that I think are more widely popular than fluffers 
would be uh, Frack from uh, Battlestar Galactica, which I think mm. you know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, Fuddruckers, the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> actually fun fact uh marco i don't know if you recall but that uh, barbecue place we took you to with that huge ass fan in the ceiling that actually used to be a fuddruckers it's called a big ass fan casey that's a brand name yeah <laughs> is there a hyphen or no uh no there isn't a hyphen and i think there should be is it all one word no it's big space ass space fans well they just don't understand grammar which doesn't surprise me oh fluffer right oh right right i saw the wikipedia link and and when it was not pluralized, <laughs> don't, don't I realized, yeah, yeah i okay, realized well. the error in my ways right well here we are mm-hmm. So we talked uh, last week, maybe the week before, about how Apple had the very curious policy of you needing to return the entire watch and band combination if you have a poorly fitting solo loop. And after quite a bit of outcry, which was to be expected, hey, guess what? They changed their minds on that. And so now you can actually return just the band and not the entire watch band combination. Uh, I haven't seen anything personally about the mechanisms by which this happens, particularly via mail, but supposedly it is a, a thing that you can do now. Yeah, this is good. I'm I'm gl- very glad they fixed this. It is kind of weird that it ever ha- was, you know, that it ever happened in the first place. Like, I, I think this was the kind of thing where, some part of the process kind of fell down it like because it's common sense that when you sell a fixed length band as part of a un, you know non-separately returnable bundle with the watch like of course there's going to be a bunch of returns especially in a year where it's really hard for a lot of people to go to stores this was kind of an unforced error i think like it, they, they should have fixed this issue in in their you know operations chain before they launched on afterwards but I'm very glad they fixed it. I don't know how easy it is to swap the bands. And a topic that we will get to in a little bit maybe is like, so my my, my son's Apple Watch came, the, the SE that we decided to try. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and I will talk about that in a little bit. But basically, uh, of course, the band was one size too big. And it turns out like, you know, he actually likes wearing it loose. So we're wearing it that way anyway. And I ordered the smaller band to compare. But like, I think the way that sizing tool was initially <laughs> uh, guiding us to use it. I think a lot of people ordered bands that were one or two sizes too big. They must have been getting a ton of returns to deal with. And so th- it's good that they've made this process better. Moving on, uh, Google has announced their carbon-free plans. And they say, as of today, which was a couple of days ago, we have eliminated Google's entire carbon legacy, covering all our operational emissions before we became carbon neutral in 2007 through the purchase of high-quality carbon offsets. This means that Google's lifetime net carbon footprint is now zero. We are pleased to be the first major company to get this done today. Since 2017, we've been matching all of our annual electricity consumption with 100% renewable energy. Now we're going even further. By 2030, Google is aiming to run our business carbon-free and on carbon-free energy everywhere at all times. That's pretty good stuff. That is actually not evil. Who knew? They still do not evil things from time to time. Nice to see companies competing to be the the more you know the more green the more uh, yeah <laughs> environmentally friendly. This I thought Google had an interesting angle because they're such a young company, relatively speaking, they can essentially afford to do this, which is erasing their their past debt. Like before, they were concerned about this. Let's let's erase all of that. Let's look at it. Let's estimate how much carbon we used for the entire life of the company before we started caring about this, and let's get offsets for all of those too. Apple for Apple it would be harder because they started in the seventies. And even just calculating what, what their carbon usage was would be difficult. I think Apple's still going farther because they're trying to weave it through their whole supply chain, although Google itself has less of a supply chain than Apple because they don't manufacture quite as much hardware as Apple does through uh, third parties or whatever. But 
yeah, I like there's good stuff. I like to see it, and uh, you know, dueling press releases and dueling multi-decade strategies to be more environmentally more environmentally friendly. It's a thumbs up for me. Yep, I'm uh, I'm pretty happy about this. This is good good times. All right, so tell me, John, what's going on with Unity's IPO filing, please? This is a series of follow-up items that have been in the notes for a while. Um, they're mostly the theme of all of these is uh, related to the Apple Epic. Uh, struggle but it's like secondary and tertiary effects setting aside apple fighting with epic and doing all their things which continues to rumble on what's going on in the rest of the industry related to this um this first one is from many weeks ago it's about unity unity is a competing 3d engine it's like unreal engine but from a different company uh it's cross-platform many games on ios and many other platforms are built based on unity um and they are filing, the company that makes it is filing for an IPO. And one of the, I don't know the details of this, but I've seen enough IPOs to know that one of the things you do, and not just an IPOs, but I think in general, is like um, you have to write up a document that describes to potential investors what things, what are the things that threaten your business. And it seems to me that in this, this strange twist of, you know, the normal stuff in business where you just constantly try to make your company seem awesome to investors to get people to invest in everything. Whatever the laws are around this require you to like be honest and it's like an insurance type thing, not literally, but like you never want someone later to say, hey, I invested in your company and you didn't tell me that this bad thing could happen. Therefore, I'm like suing you or whatever. So companies are like painfully honest in these documents because they want to list everything bad that can happen. A volcano could erupt, you know, aliens could invade, like it's just so that shareholders can't come back and say, you never told us this could happen. Right? Look at the document. Here it is. Aliens. We told you it was a potential threat. You invested anyway. So tough luck. Right. And it seems like the entire investor community and world has accepted. Yeah. Whenever anyone files for an IPO or, you know, files this document, of course, if you look at the threats, it's going to look like this company is doomed. Look at all these bad things that can happen to the company. And, you know, they're they're so vulnerable. And it's just like but they've all agreed like, yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, uh, we know that you're going to list all this stuff. We know you're going to, you know, but it doesn't scare me away. I'm still going to invest, which is this weird twist because every other part of business is all about making yourself seem awesome and adjusting your earnings and being optimistic or whatever. But anyway, uh, an interesting twist on uh, on the usual threats that they put in there from competitors and so on and so forth is and this is listed in unity's ipo and i imagine listed it may be soon listed in lots of the companies ipos which is basically a warning that a lot of unity's business relies on people using their product to sell applications through app stores and in the typical sort of cold-blooded uh language of these documents i thought it was a great encapsulation of the threats posed by app stores to other companies i'll read some portions of it here Operating system platform providers or application stores may change terms of service policies or technical requirements which could adversely impact our business. Yep, totally. If our customers <laughs> were to violate or an operating system platform or application store believes that where our customers have violated <laughs> its terms or policies, that operating system platform provider or application store could limit or discontinue our customers' access to its platform. In some cases, these, may, these requirements may not be clear or our interpretation of these requirements may not align with the interpretation of the operating system platform provider or application store, which could lead to inconsistent enforcement of these terms <laughs> of service and policies against us or our customers and could also result in the operating system platform provider or application store limiting or discontinuing access to its platform store. There's lots of long sort of multi-word phrases there to say app store but like yep you pretty much nailed it <laughs> like that's the environment into which everyone is trying to sell their applications like the, basically the app stores control the platforms and if you are going to try to ride that bear in any possible way 
Uh, the bear is going to try to potentially buck you off and it can bite you and it might even not, might not even notice you. And you might just get, you know, I'm, I'm straining this analogy. This is from the Steve Ballmer's ride the bear analogy from Microsoft and IBM way back in the day. Anyway, um, <laughs> this, I, I can't imagine any company filing for an IPO these days having anything to do with an app store, not having a section like this in their risk section. I think this, this would be a great thing to bring out in some case in the future about like, or, you know, trying to, to persuade, uh, you know, Congress to apply regulation to app stores or whatever to say, here's a demonstration of how much power app stores have. have. Now, when companies try to go public, all of them list the threat of app stores as a thing that could just be business ending for them because of the power that these app stores wield or whatever. And that can't be good, like overall for, you know, humanity, business, you know, economies like that to have like more massive risk factors like that can't be a good thing. Yeah. I mean, like I said, these documents always list like everything and they always make it seem dire, but I just thought it was, you know, if, if you tighten up the, uh, the verbiage surrounding the, you know, the, what do you call it? What is it called? Platform providers or application stores. If you squish that down to app stores, or if you just squish it further down to Apple or Google, it's very, it's a very straightforward, lawyerly explanation of the reality that we all face. Do you think this is just like a, a, a blip in computing history? Like, do you think, I mean, obviously, you know, whatever you can call it, like a 12 year period, <laughs> a blip, but like, do you think, say, in 10 years from now, that the dominant computing platforms will have these locked down, like single gatekeeper app store kind of situations? Or do you think this will be, you know, kind of partially torn down or completely torn down by then? I feel like that in most industries, what you see is a sort of Cambrian explosion of activity and then consolidation. And I guess you could have a re-explosion if there's technological change. But it's tricky. I mean, the, the one I always think of and the one you always see charts about is the auto industry. There used to be tons of car companies. And then there were not tons of car companies because most of them <laughs> went out of business and got bought or consolidated. And now, sort of with the change in tech, you're like, well, electric cars, is there going to be like an explosion of new car companies? Mm, not really. I mean, it just like seeing one new car company like Tesla is like, wow, I can't believe that happened. But I, so I, I think the same thing with computer companies. There used to be way more computer companies and way more platforms and there was consolidation. I'm not sure where, if you how you get the next next explosion in that specific type of business, right? You can have an explosion in tech companies. I think we've seen an explosion in tech companies, but platforms haven't really exploded. Even mobile, I guess you had a brief period where there was like WebOS and BlackBerry or whatever, but then again, consolidation. So, and and with app stores, they sort of got it. They 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 were pre consolidated. Because you need a platform to have an app store already, so they piggyback on existing platforms. So, I think it's one of those things where regulation could help with this. Uh, but the only, I, I think we'll we'll eventually see a diversification, but not a diversification of things that look exactly like the app store. Diversification in how products are sold and distributed, digital products are sold and distributed. Sure, but specifically app stores, specifically for mobile devices, I. There's not going to be like a third one, and I don't think either one of the two parties are going to give up much control without a government regulation. So I think it'll just be like, well, I remember when we used to all buy music from iTunes, and now we all use streaming services, right? It'll be like, well, remember when we used to all buy apps from the App Store, and now we use insert thing X that I don't know what it is, like, you know, some future unforeseen thing. I think it has to be a new, a slightly new type of thing in the same way that, you know, 
streaming services are not t- it's just digital music right uh, but it's different enough that the players changed around a little bit and there was a little there's a little bit more openness there and competing streaming services versus everybody buying from itunes you know and you know having amazon and so on and so forth come in late in the game so and speaking of gatekeeping and things of that nature news publishers including the wall street journal are joining the attack on the app store and ask for apple's cut to be halved surprise surprise yeah, this is another older story, but it was like when the, uh, the another side effect of Apple versus Epic, other companies smell blood in the water. Like when Apple is weakened slash distracted. Now, if you're part of Apple News Plus, hey, we don't like our deal either. We'd like to get more money and you have less money, Apple, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Why not pile on? I mean, I don't know if it'll work out for everybody, but as soon as there's any perceived weakness, it's time to perhaps try to renegotiate with Apple. Um Again, this was this was about a month ago, more than a month ago at this point. So I don't know how it turned out. Probably not well, but uh, people are going to try. And sort of kind of tangentially speaking of, Apple blocked a Facebook update that called out the 30% App Store quote-unquote tax. Uh, Apple blocked Facebook from informing users that Apple would collect 30% of in-app purchases made through a planned new feature, Facebook tells Reuters. Apple said the update violated an App Store rule that doesn't let developers show quote, irrelevant quote, information to users. And there's a screenshot uh, here in the show notes, which hopefully we will put as maybe the chapter art or something. Uh, but it says there's a button that says purchase access for $9.99. And in small text beneath, Apple takes 30% of this purchase. Learn more. I thought this was interesting because, I mean, on the one hand, you know Facebook's doing this to be a jerk, right? Because they're sore about the 30% and they're they're offering a price and they want they want the customer to know you don't like this price? Well, guess what? Apple's taking a 30% cut out of it. The, the implication being maybe it would be 30% lower if it wasn't for Apple. Who knows if it would? But anyway, um, but I think the interesting part of it is like if you have a if you have a business model of uh, a business model for your digital thing that you don't like that you don't want the user to know about, like that you're kind of ashamed of. Like, it's like, they're calling it irrelevant. There's no need for the customer. To know. That's between you and me, software developer. <laughs> That's a, between Apple and the developer. The, the, the customer doesn't need to know about this at all. But this relationship between Apple and the developer does affect the customer in profound ways, in, in small ways, in terms of what is the price of the specific purchase, and in big ways, in terms of what kind of applications will you ever see available on this platform. Um, and Apple saying, Apple, like literally having a rule or their interpretation of rule that says, don't tell users what's actually going on. Even if it's the truth, like it's 100% truth. You do an app purchase, Apple gets 30%. That is true. Apple doesn't want you saying that to the user. And I'm not sure that's a particularly defensive, defensible position, even though, like I said, Facebook's putting this text there to kind of be a jerk. And this is a, a battle of the titans, uh, you know, between these two companies. It seems like if Apple thought it had a system that really was good like hey the app store is great everybody loves it users apple and developers we're all doing great putting the terms in while it may be quote-unquote irrelevant or maybe too much information or maybe people don't care they wouldn't forbid it it's like yeah you want to tell people what the deal is fine like the deal is the deal what 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 harm is there in users knowing this and i think as i think as any of us who have ever had an app in the app store know customers most people have no idea how the app store works nor should they really care the same way they don't know what percentage of their purchase price of groceries is going to a vendor and how much people pay to be put on end caps like customers don't need to know that in some ways it is irrelevant but like i said in this specific instance of apps on the app store 
it is actually much more relevant to customers than perhaps the fees the grocery store charges to get your item somewhere other than the bottom shelf or whatever. Yeah, I mean, in, in this case, it's complicated. I mean, first of all, like, it, it could have been a much more complicated situation than what Facebook reported here. Facebook is a terrible company run by a bunch of terrible people who lie constantly. Facebook could be leaving out some really important information here that makes it a little bit less clear cut. That being said, if there is any kind of rule in Apple that that does you know, prohibit app developers from saying below the purchase button, Apple takes 30% of this purchase, that is indeed a, a, a big problem. Like that, I agree with John, like that is not something that is a good look. And however Apple chooses to coax the language around such a rule, of course, it's going to be an unwritten rule. But, if, you know, if they say like it's, quote, irrelevant, like that's not a meaningful term in app development. There's apps are filled with irrelevant information. <laughs> that's, how do you define what that even means? Like that, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, that's not, we shouldn't argue about what is relevant or irre- irrelevant to users. That's what Apple wants us to do if they're really doing this. But the reality is like Apple doesn't want developers apparently to, show users where the money goes. And again, that's there's a huge if here. If this story is true and if this is the whole story and if we're not, you know, if Facebook didn't leave out massive information here. That's a those are big ifs. But I think this is a very likely thing, you know, knowing knowing Apple and their attitude towards this. And I think you could kind of see it both ways like, you know, if you, you know, if, to use John's store analogy, you know, if if you go to a store, the prices in a store don't say we we take 40% of the price of this milk and you know Verizon Farms or whatever gets 60% or you know whatever it is like the store doesn't say that and customers don't necessarily need to care but i think the difference here and why customers are so in the dark about this is that when you are buying something in an app it really seems like you are giving your money to the developer it doesn't seem like you're giving your money to apple and then they're going to give some of it to the developer. So if you're in a store, you know you're shopping in the store. You know that there is such a thing as a markup in the store. And you know that when you buy that gallon of you know Verizon milk, you know that the store is going to take some part of that. It's very clear to you how that system works. Whereas in an app on your phone, people don't have that assumption. They don't have that expectation. They expect that when they are buying this thing, that that purchase price is going to the developer. Whatever that price is, it's going to the developer. Or, or they assume it all goes to Apple, and it's still, a lot of people still think that Apple makes every app in the App Store. So there's that. <laughs> right. But, like, but I, I think for the most part, I think that it is totally reasonable to expect that most people assume, on the whole, that when they perform an in-app purchase, that money goes to the developer. And whatever price they paid, that's the price the developer gets. You know, the system has always been more complicated than that. Like, there's always things like credit card fees when any transaction. But I feel like it's it's the, the difference in magnitude matters here. If they lose a few percent, like three three to five percent for like payment processing and you know weird like tax things, fine. I would even say if they lose up to ten percent for like weird you know maybe like some kind of weird tax or you know currency conversion issues in addition, fine. But I don't think people would assume. If there's an in-app purchase button and they want to give their money to, you know, somebody offering some cool thing in their app or, you know, I don't think people assume that Apple's taking a third of it. That's why I think this kind of this kind of language, if an app chooses to put this here, should be allowed. And if there is indeed a rule written or not within Apple that says that you can't do this, that's a terrible rule and they should revoke that. 
The thing that strikes me about this is, and, and granted, I'm only looking at the, the image of the picture and the, and the caption beneath, but this plays to me as though Facebook thinks that somebody's going to feel bad for Facebook that that Apple's <laughs> taking 30% of this purchase. Who is going to feel bad for Facebook in this? Like, are I, I, there must be? I, I would assume there are people that are like Facebook super fans, in the same way that you could argue the three of us are super fans of Apple. But who are they? Like, I, I, I don't know. And even the people that enjoy the social interaction that Facebook can provide, you know, friends and family who really enjoy that sort of thing. I wouldn't say any of them are really overly enthusiastic about Facebook themselves. So, like, I. I sort of get the play here like oh man apple's screwing us they're taking 30 percent of this but like your facebook grow up like who cares if it was <laughs> you marco or me or underscore or john like okay that's different but it's freaking facebook like they print money like <laughs> yeah. who cares y'all get a grip well, they're trying to turn they're trying to turn customer sentiment against apple because that's part right. it seems i mean assuming this is a thing that is it is as described it's to Facebook's advantage for people to be mad about the purchase price and to be mad at Apple, like to think that, oh, if Apple didn't take that cut, this would be lower. And now Facebook is fomenting anti-Apple sentiment, which is why it's kind of a jerky thing to do and why you can imagine Apple not particularly liking it. But I still say if the deal really is fair and would seem fair to anyone you described it to, you wouldn't be ashamed of explaining it and it would be like okay well you can it's kind of like if, if you when you went to the grocery store they had a little sign next to the mastercard thing that said mastercard takes a one percent of this transaction right or something every time you use a credit card we have to pay you know x percent or x amount to mastercard because like it's, it's like marco said if they had that sign there in small prints underneath the little mastercard symbol on the register people might read it and go huh but because it's a fraction of a percent or one or two percent or whatever it is People would just say, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. But anyway, not a big deal. But 30% is very different. And that would probably make people notice, especially if they didn't think about that before. They're like, really? 30%? Of course, on the other hand, if people knew just how much the retailer takes for certain products, they'd also be amazed. Because they would, I think most people think the majority of the purchase price of their thing goes towards, you know, Nabisco or the, <laughs> the dairy farm that sells the milk, where very often that is not the case, and the majority of the money goes to the retailer. But who knows what people think about how how the world works? I mean, it's it's not it's not something that people should need to know. It's just sometimes they're just collateral damage in this war between titans. And but I, I still I still feel like if you had a deal that seems reasonable, like the credit card fee thing, people would be like, oh well, I don't care. It's irrelevant to me, but it doesn't seem crazy. You know, like if you told someone how credit card fees work, they might be surprised that retailers just have to eat that. And it might make them feel bad for using a credit card instead of cash. But that ship has long since sailed. And I think the entire economy has learned it's worth it for the convenience. We will pay those fees because we know more people will shop at our store if we don't insist that everyone pay with cash because it's more convenient. That's why the credit card industry is well. one of the reasons the credit card industry is as, as big as it is. And so I think everyone's willing to make that trade off. It seems reasonable if you explain it. But so few people know about the App Store deals. This is setting aside the stuff I said before, the big macro level stuff of like, and by the way, they also control the type of apps you're ever going to see because they decide what is allowed on the store. More on that later, possibly. Um, that I think people would be, wouldn't just go, huh. They'd be like, wow. And maybe they would take a note of that. And maybe if and when this comes up in the legislature for just considering regulation, they would remember seeing that little sign about, uh, you know, Apple taking a 30% cut, or maybe they wouldn't care. Who knows? We're in such a, a 
a developer centric world and worldview here that I honestly don't know how regular people would, uh, you know, handicap these parties. Because I think they're, you know, Casey, you mentioned Facebook super fans or whatever, but I think in general, outside of the tech sphere, people like, like Facebook because you don't pay for Facebook, it's free. And it's a thing that has positive connotations to a lot of people. They use it all the time. If you took it away from them, they'd be sad. And they never have to pay any money for it. So thumbs up. And I think people in general like Apple. But I think people in general either don't think about developers or if you were to describe what a developer was, wouldn't like them. Because they'd be saying, oh, these people getting rich sound fart apps, right? Or whatever their notion is of what a developer is. Their, their view of it is probably not accurate. And unlike Apple and Facebook, there is no sort of friendly public face that says developer that makes people have good feelings about it. You know, this reminds me of the times and I can't think of anywhere it has happened recently, except maybe a gas station when there'll be as and you've alluded to this, a cash price and a credit card price. And the credit card price is like five, you know, tenths of a cent per gallon more or something like that. I forget exactly what it was, but yeah, you do see that from time to time. And yeah, I agree with what you said, that convenience definitely trumps pretty much everything else. And so, God, I should really be, find a better f- turn of phrase for that. Convenience is more important to more people, <laughs> most people than anyone else, other than anything else. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It just, I, it's, it's just crummy. And I think, like you said, it's such, we're so developer centric because the, the three of us are developers and make at least some small portion of our living in the app store. And so we are very, very biased when it comes to this. But yeah, it feels like, you know, 10 plus years on, 30% might be a little bit preposterous. Oh, yeah. Well, and before we, to save us from a, a bit of follow up here, if you want to run a store that accepts credit cards, the deal that you have to make with the credit card companies, I think almost always, this could be out-of-date information, but at least it used to be this way, almost always prevents you from requiring credit card minimums or charging a different price for credit cards than than for uh, other customers. Almost always, like the, the merchants demand that from the terms. Now, that being said... Many smaller stores just ignore that and, you know, they can usually get away with it because I don't think enforcement on like little mom and pop places is very strong. But that's why like the big chains, like that's why you can go to Starbucks and charge a $1.50 cup of terrible coffee. They like Starbucks knows the deal they make with, you know, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, or whatever per- precludes them from charging different prices to credit card customers. And I don't like maybe the big gas chains might negotiate things differently because gas is such a weird thing with weird margins and everything. But um, but for the most part, like, you know, most stores aren't actually allowed to charge different rates. <laughs> um, so that that's that, that that's worth knowing in, in that argument and in, in this analogy. Um, I would also say like, you know, once you know how this kind of stuff works, your behavior might change. Like once I learned that, like how much worse it is, for instance, uh, for the wait staff at restaurants to have credit card tips versus cash tips. And, you know, once you learn how much their income depends on tips as well, um, I started doing cash tips whenever I can. Like if I'm at a restaurant, if I have enough cash to pay the tip in cash, I will try to do that. Um, and I started carrying cash to restaurants for that purpose if I have enough because, you know, it, it it's a small difference for me. Oh, no, I'm not going to get like the, the 1% reward on my card for that portion of the bill, but it's a huge difference for them. And so like it, when you learn that kind of thing, you you might change your behavior. So I don't think it's unreasonable to you know, for, for an app like Facebook to attempt to tell people as evil as Facebook is to attempt to tell people like Apple's taking 30% of this purchase. 
that being said, there is another side of this. I know we're going long on this, sorry, but there is another side of this of like, what do you expect users to do when there is no other choice? You know, like, okay, <laughs> Apple takes 30% of this purchase, but there's not a button right below it that says purchase it through us, you know, so we don't have this problem because they because there can't be because Apple prohibits that. So like when there's no alternative, when there's no way for people to change their behavior, I can kind of see why Apple would say, well, it's irrelevant then. That's not a good reason, <laughs> but well, like I said, they're, they're trying to change sentiment and kind of it's kind of the same example as you giving the cash tip. Like, so you have an alternative, which is I can do I can change my individual behavior in a way that mitigates this somewhat, which is exactly what you just described. But there is another alternative, uh, you know, in, in the case of Apple, there is no individual thing that you can do. But there is a collective thing in both cases that can be done. The collective thing in your case would be. To vote for people who are going to vote for a much higher untipped minimum wage, you know, or a no no distinction between tip versus untipped minimum wage to, to get rid of or change the terrible system we have in the United States. We have terrible systems for a lot of things, by the way. Hi, people who are not in the U.S. One of them is tipped workers and that whole scam where you can pay them uh, ridiculously low wage and expect them to make it up in tips, which is, you know, anyway, um, collective action. All of us can vote for people who will make laws to change that such that these people don't have to rely so heavily on tips such that, you know, like the individual option of you tipping cash is good, but the collective action of us changing the law surrounding that is better. And so what I think Facebook is hoping for is, well, there's no individual action you can do, but we want to move your sentiment so that the collective action that somehow we will all get behind is, oh, these app stores, they need to be regulated. Let's make laws that change what they're allowed to do. Yeah, that's fair. And and I would say just in general to, to wrap this up, it's a really like dirty, scummy thing. I think anytime Apple has a rule about the App Store that precludes app developers from telling the user what's going on, like why things are the way they are or why they can't do something. Like uh, that's one of the reasons why the rule about in-app purchases I think is so sinister. Like the part that you can't even tell people why they can't sign up in your app. Like that to me is incredibly problematic and just a sleazy thing to do that is beneath the ethics that a company like Apple purports to have in other areas. Anything where they're they're literally restricting like what you can tell your users about material things that that matter in you know in the context of an app those kind of rules should not stand. Yeah, it, like any kind of rule that says like you can't say mean things about Apple that seems kind of bad because you're like, oh, really? I can't say mean things about you. It's like, well, okay. Well, well not even mean things. You you can't say facts about Apple. Like, that's that's the crazy right. thing. Right. Well, that's what I'm, I'm dividing into two things. I'm saying, like, if they said you can't say mean things about Apple, all right, well, you know, it's, it's their store and of all the things that you have to comply with, that's fine. But the next level is you can't say the truth in a neutral way. You can't literally explain what's going on in many aspects. You just mentioned you can't mention you can't explain to people why they can't sign up. It's the truth. You could explain it like, what if I explained it dispassionately and without saying Apple is a meanie? But it's like, you could, but they're like, no, you, you can't tell people what's going on. And anytime, like, it's bad enough when someone says you can't criticize. But again, they're not the government, so this is not a free speech issue. But it makes you feel bad about it. It makes you feel like, okay, well, they're, they really got me under their thumb. I can't say anything mean about them. But then saying, also, you can't tell people the truth. Even if you do it in a way that is entirely neutral, even if you do it in a way that it's glowing, it's we love Apple, we love giving them thirty percent. Nope, Apple says just don't. Please don't tell people what's going on. It's irrelevant to them. So I think uh, a way to 
perhaps understand Apple and other companies. And this was written to us with regard to Apple and Epic, but I think it's true of pretty much every company. And, and I try to remind myself of this regularly, particularly when it comes to Apple, but I often forget it. And Paul Rippey wrote in and had what I thought was a really clear distillation of motivations of businesses. And so Paul wrote, both companies are doing what they owe it to their shareholders to do trying to maximize profits. Apple has me, says Paul, personally locked in, even though my handcuffs chafe sometimes. But Epic is the same sort of, sort of sticky and just as good as extracting money, at, just as good at extracting money. At least in some middle schools, kids who play the free version of Fortnite without buying costumes are teased and called, called defaults. Ew, gross, Tommy's a default. Like they're wearing the wrong kind of shoes or something. Apple and Epic aren't bad any more than a lion who kills an antelope is bad. They're just doing what their nature has them do. Which is obvious for sure, but I, I think it's something that I at least could use a reminder of from time to time. Sorry, Paul. I hate this whole thing. Oh, I love it. Get out <laughs> um, of here. So uh, I'll explain why. Well, first, um, the epic uh, and the defaults or whatever. Listen, kids since time immemorial have been making fun of other kids for not having the things that the rich kids have. Whether it's Reebok shoes or skins in Fortnite, that will never end. That's terrible. It's not a thing that we should accept as a status quo, as I hope we haven't accepted many things that were normal for us as kids as a status quo. In the same way, uh, sort of abdicating responsibility by saying corporations owe it to their shareholders to do this, therefore they must. That's not a that's not true. That is a thing that you can choose to accept as a form of fatalism. But companies are just made up of people. And there is no privilege that shareholders have to get profit in a specific way, first of all. And second of all, I don't even accept the premise that doing things that seem bad or mean or greedy are actually the way to increase shareholder value. Again, Apple itself has made this argument many times. They've made it in words and they made it in deeds. How do you become Apple, do you do it by doing the most greedy thing possible all the time? That's not how Apple found its success. So it's it's a small-minded view to think, oh, well, they're doing this thing that seems mean, but, well, they owe it to shareholders. I don't think, like, you're assuming that this thing that they're doing that you don't like actually does benefit shareholders more than doing something that would be nicer. I don't think that's true. And second of all, even if it was true, companies are not this abstract entity that acts without thinking. They are not a law of the universe. They are not a scorpion on top of a frog. They are groups of people. They There is nothing stopping them from choosing to do something that is the right thing to do because it's the right thing to do. Again, as embodied by Apple in many instances, if not necessarily the ones that we're talking about. So I reject this whole thing. I hate it when people say, oh, companies have to do it. They have to make profit. They have to extract value. They have to enslave us in these work camps. It's just what companies have to do. Oh, I guess you're well, right. They do have to do that. You can't blame them for doing it. They're just companies. Nope, nope. I absolutely can blame them. That's not what they have to do. And also on top of all that, it's probably not even what they should do if they want to make the most money. I I understand what you're saying, but I mean, at, at some point, the the buck always has to stop somewhere. And and what you're saying to me is that the buck does not stop with the shareholder. And and I don't know. I don't think any companies operate that way. Any reasonably large companies operate that way. It's just. I mean, I don't want it to be that I way. I mean, what what you're what you're offering is a criticism of of you know unbridled capitalism that if if left to their own devices, these companies will destroy the earth and uh, externalize all losses and internalize all gains to benefit a tiny minority, if not constrained by the laws that we collect 
collectively as a people impose upon them. And that is probably true, but it is not something that I accept and excuse and say, yep, sure, totally. That's how the way the world has to work. No, no, it's not the way the world has to work. And it's not the way the world should work. And I don't, and like I said, I don't think it's a Pollyanna-ish assumption because I think you can make more money by doing the right thing and making good products and not being super greedy. And I think Apple has actually shown that in many instances to get it to the point where it is because it has done many things that seem from a bean counter micro perspective to be the wrong move. And at every stage that it has done that, it has gotten more successful, not less. But if that were the case, then then Elon, the you know savior of all mankind, should be doing so much more to give Tesla technology to other companies, right? Because if he is really as benevolent as everyone seems to think he is, then he would be giving all of this information away, and he's not. I mean, it, it, it's it's not saying that you you know you have to just be entirely selfless and give away everything. That is obviously not the greatest strategy. We're just choosing between the greediest possible thing you can do and something that is slightly more magnanimous. And people are arguing what it's such a cynical, cynical argument to say, well, they could do the ever so slightly more magnanimous thing, but they owe it to the shareholders to be assholes, and they don't. There's nothing there's nothing making that so. They could they are choosing to do it and we could rightly call them assholes for choosing to do it, but there is no f- force of nature demanding that they do it. It's such a cynical view to think that's just, you know, they're just going to do what they're going to do and there's nothing we can do about it and you know, we should accept it as the way things are. No. That's the reason we make laws regulating companies so that the worst, uh, you know, the the worst angels, the devils, you know, the 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 worst aspects of humanity are not allowed to uh, you know, have free reign over our entire society. That's why we make these laws. Um, and in the best cases, in the most successful companies, they are able to, you know, sort of restrain themselves from doing the worst possible thing that has the most short-term game for them, gain for them specifically. In general, we demonize companies that do that, at least, you know, uh, over the long arc of history. They say, well, this company did the sleaziest things possible and filled the water with mercury and made all this money briefly so one big fat cat rich white guy could retire a gazillionaire and then die uh but they poisoned an entire town in general we frowned upon that even though in the short term well they had to do that and maximize profits there was no law against putting mercury in that stream nope don't accept it so uh one of the uh new things from the apple watch event from a couple weeks back is Apple announced family setup. And the idea here is that uh, until now, a, a, every Apple Watch was required to be paired with an iPhone, not an iPad, an iPhone. And now you can set up an Apple Watch for someone else in your family who does not have their own iPhone. And it has to be cellular. And once you do this, it gets its own phone number, similar to the other cellular Apple Watches with the whole number sync system thing. But it's a, it's its own phone number. You can call it directly. It doesn't ring with yours. So like it's it's kind of its, its own independent cellular device, but without having a phone. And then you can, like, you know, use it as any other family device. So, like, you can see the person's location if they share it with you. Um, you can enforce screen time limits. There's a new feature called school time uh, that basically locks down all, all the distracting features of the watch during the hours you set if they want to wear it to school. We've actually been kind of on the edge of wanting to get our son some kind of cellular device so that we could see where he is because in our current situation, he's doing a lot of like going to the playground by himself and, and stuff like that. And, or, you know, maybe going to a friend's house after school who, you know, and so I, we wanted to 
give him some kind of way that we could see his location if we need to, and that he could call us or we could know we could call him or something in an emergency or to see like what was going on. And he's still a little small, a little small and a little young. We thought for a phone, we didn't really want to get him a phone. Some of the kids in his class actually already have phones, um, but we didn't we didn't want to go there yet. I don't know or care what everyone else's thoughts are about what what's too young for phones. <laughs> this is this is sorry for everyone who has different opinions. <laughs> uh, this is this is just uh, you know our needs here and our thoughts here. Anyway, so this seemed like a perfect arrangement uh, where you know an Apple Watch that that is like you know an, an inexpensive model, hence the new SE, um, or even like an old used. Uh, one of the old ones if we had it, but unfortunately we didn't have any uh, aluminum ones uh, that had cellular. So we went with an SE, you know, the nice base base model SE one, uh, but with cellular. And uh, funnily enough, now my son wears the same size watch as I do, the 40 millimeter. <laughs> <laughs> um, got him a size two uh, of the new rubber strap thing, although size one is probably going to be the more appropriate size. I'm waiting for that to arrive in a few weeks. Uh, but two, two is loose, but it works. He wore it uh, today was the first day of wearing it fully, like for the whole day, including going to school with it. Then after school, sure enough, we were able to send him off to the playground uh, by himself, and uh, he was able to come back. And for anybody who thinks that we're monsters, it's a different situation where we live. It's it's fine. Everyone here does this. Um, anyway, so the overall experience of it was surprisingly good. Uh, you would expect something like this from Apple that's like a brand new feature that involves like coordinating, you know, multiple services, multiple devices, different iCloud accounts, the carrier accounts, you would expect a lot of rough edges and and a lot of things that are broken or don't work well. And largely it's been, it was great. So first of all, two things have gone very well for me this year with this upgrade cycle. Number one, I was able to successfully transfer when I got my new series six I was able to transfer through the regular process my cellular service from my old watch to my new watch. That has literally never worked before. This year, for some reason, it worked. I'm very happy about that because that saved me from you know dealing with AT and T's weird like chat assistance. Uh, so that was that was wonderful. And then when it came time to set up Adam's uh, family setup watch, with the exception of one unlabeled button, I, I took a screenshot. Maybe I'll make it the chapter art. Uh, there's <laughs> there's like a, a family setup screen and there's like an, an unlabeled like localized string missing thing where it has a little like privacy people shaking hands icon and under in all caps it says button underscore title underscore wi-fi nice <laughs> so besides that one missing localized string uh everything else about it actually worked very smoothly i was shocked again like the, I, I hit very few rough edges um, the only little snags where we had, I had trouble figuring out like, how do I get like his contacts or how do I, how do I like, add myself to his contacts and everything? And then how do I get his location to show up in our, in our like, you know, find my app as the watch's location. And it, it turned out I had to like go adjust settings because, you know, he, he'd already had an iPad with his own iCloud account. He's, you know, in our family account, um, and we had uh, screen time restrictions set up for him, including not only like hours of use, but things like privacy settings. That's, that's all like everything that used to be parental controls is now under screen time. So we had to actually go into the screen time settings like on his like on on our devices, like managing his settings to enable location services at all and then to enable 
him to share his location. And then we could see him in our family group. But before he had the permission to share his location, that didn't work. Mm. And that was a weird thing to have to find, but I eventually found it. Um, But besides that, it has worked very well. Um, My only concern remains battery life. (laughs) Oh, there was another funny feature. So the school time feature is interesting. Let me go into that for a second here. Um, I I, I actually forgotten about this, uh, but they have this feature called school time where you can set during certain hours. It basically locks out the watch from doing anything that might distract the kids in school for the most part. So it fixes it to a certain face. And I I haven't looked to see if I can edit that face at all. Um, But it's like it's a certain face that seems only accessible for school time. It has it has it's a yellow circular you know, hourly index face with analog hands and it shows digital time below the, the like, you know, spoke of the hands and it shows the day and date above. So I guess, great, it teaches kids how to read analog time, maybe, but also, you know, has the digital time there and has, you know, day and date. I was a little disappointed that it, that it seems to force this face instead of letting him use other faces that he might want. Um, it disables complications and apps and it puts the watch in do not disturb mode. And only the approved contacts are able to get through. So it's actually a very good thing for school. I was amused that when he came home, I was I was looking through the settings and I spotted in, in school time. It tells me every single time he woke up the watch to look at it and how long he looked at it. <laughs> so I was able to say, hey, Adam, hey, you know what? You looked at the watch 71 times during school. We have to lessen that. <laughs> <laughs> he just got it. It's a new thing. Of course, he's going to be looking at it. It's cool, right? And 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 I and you know we had the whole conversation about you know this is not a thing to brag about. This is not a thing to like you know show off. Like that's that's not a good thing. Like just you know if people ask, you can say that your parents got it for you so they can see where you are and so they and so you can call them. That's that that's that's the that's the official story to tell kids in school. And well, you know I know he wanted to show it off. But, yeah, of course, of course he wants to show it off. He's a kid, right? That's I I knew this was going to happen. The reason I bring this up though is that the battery life was not great at the end of the day. So after school, it was down to 33%. As we were like going home from the playground in the evening, I like went to go pick him up. We were going home from the playground in the evening, and it was about to go into like power save mode because it was down to like 5% or something. So the way it was used today, the battery life seems pretty bad. But I think because it was new and because he probably was looking at it and showing it to a lot of people all the time constantly – you know, that's it was probably depressed somewhat. I explained to him about things like, you know, the workout mode, which of course has already tried. He is he has explored so much of the watch already. He was like, like within 20 minutes of having it, he was like, do like doing the, the individual handwritten characters to respond to me in a text message. <laughs> like, he's, he's, Can you imagine if you got a device like this when you were that age, what you would have done with it? Like think about oh what God. we, every nook and cranny, uh, cranny that we explored of like our crappy, you know, personal computers that had such limited functionality. This, this one thing that's on his wrist all day <laughs> does so much more than us writing like basic programs. And we were, you know, so I does not surprise me. Like all they've got is time and they're, they're going to find everything that they can do with it. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, he he and his friend in school have already asked, are there any games on it? And I, I'm like, I actually, I, I know there's not on it now. I don't actually know if there are any good watch games. Adam will tell you. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> He'll eventually know. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't think that would be a great idea for, for the battery life reasons, but also in the battery front, 
you know, one concern I've had with this that that I've mentioned, I think David Sparks talked me told me about it, you know, years ago, is like when an Apple Watch with cellular is away from its phone all day long, it it keeps the cellular active way more than the average Apple Watch does. Like most people with cellular watches, they're with their phone most of the day, but you just might go out like maybe for a jog and have it be on cellular, but like it's not going to be like an all-day thing the way it is if you're going to school and you don't have a phone. So the cellular is actually not really designed to be on that long battery life-wise. And so I think the battery life might just always be really crappy in this context, like the way it's being used this way. Um, this is also the smaller watch. You know, the bigger the bigger watch would have had a bigger battery. It would have looked even more ridiculous on him, so we didn't do that. <laughs> but uh, that might be a concern for anybody thinking about this, that battery life is going to be an issue. I'll, I, I'm, this is what I'm going to watch, like, as the novelty wears off and it just becomes, like, a thing that he has on his wrist. You know, we'll see how that changes things. I might also change the screen to tap to turn on rather than raise to wake. I think that might help. Again, because this is the SE, it does not have the always on screen. In this case, I think that that's a very good decision (laughs) because the battery life is going to be so constrained. Um, So anyway, we'll see how that goes. Battery life is my primary concern. It at least will be just barely enough. Hopefully we can get better than that with maybe different settings and, and novelty wearing off. But overall, so far, it seems really good. And it was amazing that, like, I mean, and part of this, you know, again, my kid, you know, he, he's a nerd. He figured it out real fast because he's made of us. But, like, <laughs> he, like, he literally has had this phone for a day. And he calls me from the playground. Like, I, I had messaged him, like, hey, we're going to dinner. You know, meet us there or we'll come pick you up. And <laughs> he calls me from the playground in response to my text. Okay, daddy. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, we'll, I'll see you there. <laughs> like, <laughs> like he just, I just got my first phone call from my son. And it's from his wrist from a playground. <laughs> Yeah, if you could have lifted your wrist on, on the playground when you were eight and, and called your parents and talked to them. like, <laughs> like I mean, it, You know, just think of another ridiculous thing. We've talked about this before, about things that we did with our programmable calculators. In yeah. School, which were such pieces mm-hmm. of garbage in terms of computing ability, and yet we'll find every nook and cranny of thing that we can do with them that's cool, and he's living in the Dick Tracy future. Like, it's just, I'm very jealous of, uh, of the kids these days. They don't know how good they have it. We had to play Snake on a stupid calculator, and we liked it. You say all that, and I agree with you uh, by and large, but also consider that Marco and Tiff will know where Adam is always. And I think we talked about this last episode, maybe a couple episodes ago, but like I was a pretty straight shooter growing up. I really didn't do anything. I don't think that 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 was that particularly egregious. But nevertheless, part of being, and granted, I'm talking about being a teenager, not talking about being, you know, a grade schooler, but part of being a kid is doing crap that your parents don't want you to do. And so even though I agree with you that having all this technology on his friggin' wrist <laughs> is incredible. <laughs> and and in put my putting myself in Mark Tiff's shoes, I would probably make the same choices. But I, I think it's worth recognizing that in some ways, we're, man, I was going to say hindering, but that's not fair. We're changing the way oh. that, that our kids are, associ- or are associating with us or treating us as compared to the way that we treated our parents, which is probably healthy and natural. Oh, don't, don't you worry about it. it like, in like two weeks, you will know how to disable the location and put it in. A <laughs> thing and turn, like, yeah. First of all, teenagers absolutely will figure this out. But even young kids figure out how to get around screen time limits, how to not show their location when they don't want to. At this point, Adam probably doesn't want to hide his location for his parents. But when he does, rest assured, he will have no problem doing that. Oh, yeah. And, and then the other thing is uh, you have probably haven't experienced this yet because you just use it for one day and you haven't been that far away. But, you know, my kids have Apple Watches. Finding the location via Apple Watch 
it's hit or miss depending on cell coverage, depending on battery life. Like sometimes you just go to find my and it just it spins for a while and you just don't get to see a location. And and these are not in the cases where my kids are intentionally hiding it, but they're just like at school or at their practice, you know, sports practice or something. Right. Um, sometimes you just can't get a signal from where they are. And sometimes you just don't know. So it's, you know, unreliability is a factor. Um, my one suggestion for Marco in terms of battery life is perhaps, uh, this is from, I, I have this experience with my dog's thing, which is a similar similar tracker. My dog doesn't look at uh, her tracker very often. But anyway, um, same deal. If it's, if it's you know, it's got GPS in it, but if it's on like sort of the cellular network or the, you know, t- communicating to GPS satellites all the time, it really kills the battery. Uh, what you want for it is for it to be on Wi-Fi. So you register the dog tracker thing with Wi-Fi, with sort of known Wi-Fi networks. And if it can see one of those no, known Wi-Fi networks, it does all its communication over Wi-Fi, which I think take, just takes less battery than trying to do the GPS slash cellular stuff. So if your school has a Wi-Fi network, can you get the watch on that Wi-Fi so that when he shows up at school, it switches cellular off or at least uses it less often and instead just speaks over Wi-Fi? Let me paint a picture for you. He's in a new school this year. He just got an Apple Watch. He's the only kid in his class with an Apple Watch. And this is a school that I barely know because it's a brand new school. There is no way I'm going to ask him for the Wi-Fi password <laughs> for his Apple Watch. It's probably written on the on the wall on a big piece of paper. You just you just need to go in there and this is the, this is the thing that annoys me about my local schools. All my local schools have Wi-Fi. But they don't tell the parents what the password is, and the schools are in a cell phone dead zone. So it's like you show up there for some like back to school night parent thing, and you're bored out of your mind because you've had multiple kids to go through the school, and someone's asking some long question that's more of a comment, and you can't look at Twitter, <laughs> and and you know there's Wi-Fi, but you can't get on the Wi-Fi because they won't tell you the password, and the kids are on it through some like a certificate system that like only their phones can get on it, like you can't get on it unless you know the password to the guest network. Anyway. If your school has Wi-Fi, the password is on the wall on a not an eight and a half by eleven piece of paper. So you should just go there, look around, and it'll, the Wi-Fi password would be like the name of the school plus one two three, and then just serendipitously, you know, secretly just put the watch on Wi-Fi and see if that helps. Yeah, I mean, there are complicating factors. For instance, I'm not sure I'm allowed in the building. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, this is all. Of this is a a non-COVID times discussion as I discuss my kids being at school and stuff like that. So yeah. It's amazing to me, John, how often you find yourself in a cell phone dead zone. Does are the the witches and in- rich people? The answer the answer is rich people. I live. I I am a rich person. I live among rich people. Rich people do not like cell phone towers. Yeah, but they like having the things that make them happy, like cell service. No, they don't. It's a very much NIMBY thing. It's hard. Yes, it when is. you're in the richest neighborhoods, there's usually bad cell coverage. Well, guys, this is a problem I've never had. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I'm, I'm not in the richest of rich neighbors, but the, the richer neighborhoods you get, the more I go towards people's houses who have actual mansions and actual, like, backyards and land, the cell phone signal gets worse. Like, you can, if you take the, you know, the, the green line through the, you know, the T in Boston through certain sections, you'll know when you're driving through the richest of rich sections because the cell signal gets worse. And it's like, I think the same thing. It's like, well, wouldn't you just want... Isn't that annoying to you? Wouldn't you want to have good cell signal? Not as much as they don't want to have cell towers, I guess. Yeah, I'm lucky that my neighborhoods have cell towers in them. Like, from you know, like it's able, it's we're easily able to see them. Even <laughs> it's 
<laughs> it's very obvious that so we have great coverage but uh but yeah like there's like you know if you like drive a little while go to like a few towns over to like the super rich one and it's, you, it, you get no signal whatsoever for anything i mean i hear you that's just it's such so different than my lived experience which isn't to say you guys are lying or wrong or anything I, it makes sense it's just it's so different than my lived experience it's hard to wrap my head yeah, around i think it's a different set of a uh, different set of values depending on where you are because in, in my experience in my you know small experience in the Midwest visiting my in-laws, the the ritzier neighborhoods there tend to value things like having good television and internet and cell coverage more than they value not seeing cell towers, right? And just for whatever reason, if it, maybe it's old money versus new money, or maybe it's just a different East Coast, West Coast attitude, or just a technological bent versus not, the equations don't, or maybe it's population density, availability of land, whatever, for whatever reason, I find it incredibly frustrating in, in the specific area that I am up here in New England. The, you know, the old money, rich people houses don't have cell towers. And, and maybe it's because all the land is already all bought up and already all developed. So there's no, like, there's no available place to put the cell tower that's not it literally in someone's backyard. And no one wants it in their backyard. They would love it if it was in someone's backyard five blocks away, but then that person doesn't want it. It's, it's total nimbyism. Yeah. Also, like hills are a huge problem. Like, so if you have any kind of yeah. terrain, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that it, like you need a lot more cell towers than you would think, and it makes it even harder. Then, Marco, I don't think you ever get to this neck of the woods, but there was somewhere I, I want to say it was maybe six eighty four. I'm not confident I'm right about that though. There was uh, a couple of, of cell towers where they put like fake um, like needles, like like um, oh yeah, the cell trees. Yeah, yeah, the cell trees. Yeah, like like whenever I'm on the like, whenever I'm on a long highway drive, you you see those pretty frequently. Yeah, because I believe it was the stretch of 684 um, that that I would take away from my parents when they lived in Connecticut, and I would take it you know down toward the George Washington Bridge and all that. And I vividly remember there were a couple of the, yeah the cell trees. <laughs> there are these things that like if you if you only glance, the top of them looks like a very very thin like Charlie Brown style like you know needle based tree. If if you only glance at it, but it's like. 800 feet taller than yeah. every other thing around it. Yeah, and they're so way like taller the, than actual trees. Yeah. It's the most preposterous thing I've ever seen. Oh my gosh. It always made me laugh every time I saw it. Yeah, it, it's like the world's worst toupee. It's like it, it, you're <laughs> fooling nobody. <laughs> Going back for a minute, um, just before, to close out the subject, how <laughs> we got into the subject uh, about uh, location tracking uh, ethics within a family. Um, because it is kind of interesting that, like, you know, we can see our son's location at all times as long as he's wearing his Apple Watch and the battery is good and the cell signal is good and everything. The ethics we've established so far, which is you know first established between Tiff and I, uh, is that location sharing is reciprocal. So I showed him to find my app on his watch and said, here, you can see where we are too. Interesting note on that. I repeatedly show this to my kids because they're constantly asking when we're going to pick them up, where are you? I'm like, you always know where I am. We, <laughs> sh- we all share our location. Find me. I've, it just And no matter how many times I remind them, I guess it's too much of a hassle for them to open up the Find My app. Like they can't. It's not that they don't know at this point. It's, I've I've resorted to taking a photo from my perspective in the car of where I am, hoping that they can see see how I'm by this part of the baseball diamond and you need to just walk across and come to me because this is where I'm parked. 
And it's like, or you could use Find My, like our location share. I thought this was, I, I didn't know if the, uh, we set it up so long ago, but I just assumed this is the way family sharing works by default all the time is that everyone shares the location already. But yeah, we totally do that, even though it only ever seems to work one way where we're constantly trying to find the kids and they don't care where we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the other rule that we follow is, um, so, you know, the sharing is reciprocal. So if I can see you, you can see me. And also that... We don't make a habit of idly checking it, that we only check it if we need to know for a good reason. And it doesn't, it doesn't need to be like emergencies only. It can be like, hey, I wonder if Tiff is on her way home from the thing she was at. So I know it is like start cooking dinner. You know, it, it could be something like that. But like it isn't a thing that we like idly just check for no reason at all, because that feels like a little too invasive. Yep. And it is very convenient for the record. Like it is a really neat feature if you're if you're trying to do something like that, like get dinner on or whatever the case may be. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely comes across as a little stalkery on the other end for sure. Oh, goodness. So so Adam seems to definitely like it. The, how do the two adults feel about it, Marco? I mean, so far, so good. It's only been one day. So maybe I'll do I'll do some follow up on this like in the future after it's been a little while. So we can kind of see how it works, you know, in, in more practice. But, you know, so far, so good. Yeah. You know, I got to say, I am deeply concerned about battery life on that device. Yes. Because as I've mentioned numerous times, the battery life on my small my small uh, Apple Watch Series 5 has never been stellar and is getting considerably worse now that it's about a year old. Um, I still haven't ordered a replacement because I just can't be bothered by the god-awful website. I'm still allergic to the inside, and I don't want to go to the Apple store. So I might never order one. Who knows? But nevertheless, um, I, I, am, I am really concerned about what it would be like to run my watch on cellular all day long. And perhaps there's some sort of, you know, uh, some sort of low power version that the SE uses, you know, or some sort of hardware that's maybe different on the SE. I don't know, but, but I would presume and assume that it's going to be a real rough battle. And, and Adam's probably gonna have to top that thing up at least once daily. All right. So let's return to ask ATP for the first time in a couple of weeks. Uh, Mike Lee Williams says, I want snapshots of my Mac. I have a network attached storage that supports BTRFS. Is that butter? How do you, what is the correct colloquial? Some people message? say butterfs. I always just say BTRFS. Who knows how you're supposed to? Okay. Should I use Time Machine or should I just clone using something like Carbon Copy Cloner or SuperDuper and then take a BTRFS snapshot? I ask because a network Time Machine backup seems like it has the half-life of like three months max. John? I know a lot of people have problems with network time machine backup and maybe i'm just a network time machine unicorn uh but i don't <laughs> like a lot this is a, a major complaint for people who have especially if it's a third party uh time machine network backup they're like oh it works fine but then like so frequently it says your backup could not be verified and must be recreated and some people mm -hmm. say that happens every week some people say it happens every month i've had that happen to me but like two times in seven years so it's a whole different scale and so as far as i'm concerned Network time machine backups are just problem free, and that's what I would totally recommend. Now, what what Mike is describing is like, oh, I'm going to do something clever, or I'm just going to do a clone, but then I'm going to use file system features to snapshot that clone. I think that would probably work, assuming assuming BTRFS uh, either has all the features you need to preserve the metadata that you care about, or assuming you're using a sparse bundle disk image or something else that's built on top of the file system, and what you're actually doing is snapshotting the disk image, snapshotting the sparse bundle directory for the disk image. Like That can be made to work, but in general, my recommendation is and remains use Time Machine. 
because that is Apple's most supported uh, snapshots of my Mac over time system. You can recover from it. You can pick a point in time to recover. In theory, it should be the best supported. I know people don't have a lot of luck with it, but I don't think there's anything. My experience tells me that it's not impossible to have a good experience with it. So I'd say try Time Machine. If it if it's constantly corrupting itself and there's nothing you can do to fix it, maybe try rolling your own system with BTRFS and, and sparse bundles or whatever you're going to do. But I think that's going to be much harder to deal with. Um, and when you need to recover because your whole disk dies and you boot it up, uh, it's it's much nicer to be able to say, uh, you know, connect to a time machine thing and pull the snapshot you want and go. You can do it the other way. It will eventually work if you know what you're doing, but it's trickier. I would also add, I've had really good luck with my Synology network backup over time. Like that, the the thing where Time Machine, like you know, basically fails and makes you clear it out and rebuild the entire thing, usually because it thinks it's out of space when it isn't, or you know, whatever. Uh, that happened to me all the time with almost every previous Time Machine setup I had ever used until I did the Synology's like hosted network Time Machine thing, and that works perfectly for it, for me. And one thing that might make a difference here is that the way I set that up is with disk quotas per user using it. And, th- and Apple's, like you know, the, the, whatever the Time Machine client is on Macs, it will read disk quota information like, for network shares and will obey it. And for whatever reason, that worked way better, and I never had this kind of failure happen. Uh, whereas, yeah, with previous Time Machine backups, and, uh, I, I had that happen, yeah, about every three months. That's about, that's about right. Um, <laughs> so I'm also using Synology, but I never went the extra step to do the per-user quota. I have multiple users just sharing a volume with no quotas on it and still no problems. Right? Great. So, like, I mean, other than, like I said, I think it has corrupted itself maybe three times in seven years. Um, but that's it's so it's so beneath my radar that I just tend not to think about it. So it could just be a credit to Synology's implementation of the time machine hosting. It could just be dumb luck, but it's not impossible is what I'm saying. Uh, Migurdick Carnegie writes, as a soon to be father, I'd like your opinion on what the best baby monitor experiences. I say experience instead of device or product, because whether it's a camera or and app or standalone device, I care about the overall experience. Now, you have to consider that the youngest child of the three of us is just shy of three years old now. So this information is a bit out of date. Um, I think I might have heard it from Marco and Tiff, but I heard from somewhere that you really, 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 really do not want an app-based thing. Yep, that was us. Okay, and and that and as soon as you guys described why, which I will give you a chance to do in just a moment, uh, it made perfect sense. Now, again, this is information that that you know in in the case of the Arments is is what eight? How old did you say Adam was? Eight, yeah, nine, eight, eight. Okay, so it's eight years out of date, and for me, it's three years out of date. But I am looking at my at right now in my hands is our um, Infinoptics monitor. I think that's right. I'll put a link in the show notes. It is a device that you carry around with you and it shows video and audio or it shows video and plays audio of your kid or kids rooms. Uh, I really love this one in particular because the model that I have has a standard USB plug to power the handheld receiver thing. I don't know if that's still the case today, though, so double-check my work on that. But when I bought it, you, it was one of those, you know, the, the things you would use for, like, headphones and, like, a Kindle, whatever that size is. I don't care what it's called. It's one of those standard ones, which is great because you can plug it into a computer. You can plug it into a wall wart. You can plug it into darn near anything. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. Marco, can you tell me why it is you don't want a Wi-Fi slash app-based thing? Yes. So this is a common trap that nerds like us fall into 
when we are when we have to buy a baby monitor for the first time is one of two things either a let me get the coolest technological one that is almost always some kind of like service-based one where you know it's it's ip based and so there's like some kind of cool apple looking camera and then you can either use their their monitor or it just uses your phone and you can you can check it from the cloud and you can you can even have it so you can check it when you're at your friend's house or whatever down the street who knows you can for some reason if you left your baby at home and it isn't something that requires you to go to jail then you know great you can check it from (laughs) from there okay and or you know pitfall b is you see how expensive baby monitors are and you're like these are just cameras I can get a cheap IP camera for X dollars instead. I'll just use an IP camera. It'll be better and cheaper, and I'll view it from all these different IP camera-based viewing apps on on my phone. So the problem with the former, the fancy camera, is that whenever you are sending something out to the Internet and back, you will introduce significant latency and unreliability, and there will be a strong incentive for the service that you are using to compress the crap out of the video to save on bandwidth costs and to make it more responsive. And so you end up basically with a latent, unreliable, crappy video stream. The problem with the IP camera is that, first of all, it's just more crap to set up at a time in your life when that's the last thing you need. (laughs) The last thing you need is to have, like, technical burdens to deal with and to be tech support for them when they break and anything that's, like, fragile or complicated at all. You don't need that right now. The other problem with IP camera stuff is that, like, you're still using some kind of phone to view them. You are, you're limited by the network. You're limited by any kind of, like, you know, whatever the Wi-Fi coverage in, in the various relevant rooms might be or whatever your connectivity setup is. Um, IP camera viewing apps tend to be terrible as well. <laughs> I, I never found a good one when I briefly had some IP cameras. Um, it, so it's it's not a good world to get into. It, it's it's not as nice as you think it is if you haven't tried it. Uh, and it's, it's not great. Um, and... The last thing you want out of a baby monitor is latency or unreliability because that literally ruins the entire point. (laughs) Not only do you need to trust, you know, if you're using a monitor, you're using it for a reason. You want to see the state of your baby or hear the state of your baby, which they will usually make clear to you. If it like freezes or the video is delayed or whatever, it dramatically reduces the utility of this of this device and it calls into question why you're using one at all if you're going to have one that has significant delays or is unreliable at all and my experience eight years ago was that the ip based solutions including the fancy cameras and everything were unreliable and full of latency and had dropouts and like the picture would just freeze for like 30 seconds or a minute or more and it's like okay well then you're you're telling me this is the state of my baby but it's actually out of date and i can't i have no way to tell that that's the last thing you want <laughs> kind of device it's also just really annoying when it's not live when there's any latency at all you're going to hear the cry and scream like the quieter version from you know the next floor up when you're downstairs and then three seconds later you hear the echo they'll hear the louder version out of the monitor and that <laughs> latency is really annoying <laughs> and can create some interesting feedback loops um and so the last thing you want is for your baby's cry to be made more grating on your ears and more annoying this is not the time of your life when you need that kind of thing you this is the kind of this is the time in your life when you need 
very simple solutions that work every time that ask very little of you. The regular old style where you just have a camera microphone thing on one end, you have a portable monitor of some kind on the other end, and they talk over RF directly in your house with no networking involved, that is the best kind because it is instant. There's no latency. It's reliable, way more reliable than anything IP-based or network or internet-based. Usually it's also cheaper uh, even because, like, again, like all these solutions that like use your phone as a monitor, that might have made some sense in a world where screens are expensive, but screens haven't been expensive for a long time now. The, the regular old setup where you just have a camera and a screen with a battery behind it that you can plug into USB or whatever, like that's a great setup and none of those components are expensive. Like those are all very cheap things these days. So the actual cost savings for anything else would be minimal, I think, maybe even negative. So just get the old kind that just has a camera and a dedicated little handheld monitor thing. And you don't need to involve your phone. You don't need to involve the internet. You don't need to involve any kind of weird like cloud service or local networking weirdness or latency or anything like that. This is one of the one of the things where the old way is actually better. There's a classic story in my mom's side of the family, and I don't know if it's true or not, but they apparently when my mom was growing up, their their family was really, really close with the family like across the street or maybe like around the corner or something like that. And, you know, my mom is like 65 years old now. So this was, you know, the mid to late 50s, early 60s. And the story that I've been told numerous times is that what they would do is they would call from from the house that housed the baby to the house where the parents were hanging out and leave the phone off the hook in the baby's room. And then they would <laughs> leave the phone off the hook at the house where they were partying where hopefully they would hear if the baby was screaming and then one of them would run back to the to you know to my my mom's house and help her one of her younger brothers if necessary. I don't know if that story's real, but it always made me laugh that that was how they handled it, you know, in the 60s was oh we'll just call each other because local calls are free even back then. And so that was what they did. Uh John, before I move on, any thoughts from you? Well, if you don't mind uh, everyone telling you that you're a terrible parent and you're going to kill your children, there's always the option of attachment parenting and co-sleeping and other situations where you don't actually need remote monitoring for your kids because they're sleeping with you all the time, but uh, or some of the time anyway. Um, my kids are so old that I just had the audio-only monitors, so that was a different world. Um, in today's world, obviously, this is speculative. I don't know what things are, but I do now have cameras in my house. And in my opinion, the the cameras I have, I have a bunch of, just a bunch of Nest cameras, like the current models. The reliability of them is fantastic, and the latency I find perfectly acceptable for monitoring children. I'm not using it to monitor children. I'm just using it to monitor my house and occasionally my dog. But it's very similar. I, I think they're dead simple, reliable, and I think the convenience of being able to just look at it on your phone is super convenient. That said, I don't have a baby. I don't know what it's like. I don't know what I would choose. All I can think of is what I'm used to, which was pure analog RF audio-only monitors, which we got for our first child and we just kept using for our second. I still have a little bit of PTSD hearing the sort of staticky, you know, amplified <laughs> cries. You know, just anything associated with, with uh, you know, raising infants into toddlerhood is going to probably, depending on your kid, be somewhat traumatic for you as a parent. So choose wisely. Uh, maybe maybe that's a reason not to use your phone because now you might start associating your phone with this, you know. Anyway, there's raising kids is hard, um, and I'm not sure what the best solution is. But I think if what if the experience you want is the ability to 
look to view and hear your child in any time in the most convenient way. Based on my experience with the Nest indoor home cameras, that would have, if that had existed when my kids were infants, I think that would have filled, fulfilled my needs perfectly and I wouldn't have minded all the things Marco talked about in terms of latency and so on. I have Nest cameras. They're not good for this. It's too, there's too much latency. <laughs> too much latency for you. I ha- like I have them in my house. They're fine. Every, every time I, every time I look in, at my thing, like you're right, there is lag, but it's sufficient. Like it's, it's never 30 seconds or a minute. It's like 1.5 seconds. Even when I'm in different, a different state, I can just look at the inside of my house in essentially real time. The image comes up quickly. It's high resolution. It's reliable of the internet. It helps that I have a very fast network upload connection from my house, right? That's, it's fine. For, for my needs. I don't need it to be super duper real time. Um, but again, I didn't use it with baby, so I don't know how well it works in that scenario. Finally, uh, John Metcalf w- wants to know, hey, is Marco watching p- the possible Tesla competition like the Polestar for future lease shopping? The Polestar 2 is smaller than the S, but it seems like it could be a proper competitor to the 3. Interested to see where this, where the line goes. And I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I'd also like to call out, uh, since this Ask ATP was asked 14 years ago, uh, <laughs> MKBHD has done another episode of, what is it, Autofocus? Is that the name of his car series? I believe that's right. Um, and he, he did an episode on the Porsche Taycan, Taycan. I, I don't know how to pronounce it. He doesn't know how to pronounce it either. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, when he was tweeting about it during, during the editing process or filming process, he tweeted, boy, am I glad I started this car review, car video series. This Porsche Taycan is actually a very different car than any Tesla. And just a few lucky people have experienced both and get to articulate that should be a fun video. And we'll at least put a link to the video in the show notes. Also try to dig up a video uh, from Rory Reed, formerly of Top Gear, uh, who did a test of the Model 3 versus the Polestar 2, which is worth watching. Both of these videos are like 10, maybe 15 minutes each. Uh, But to answer the question, Marco, are you keeping your eye on anything or are you uh, Elon or nothing? I am very, very happy with the Model S as a car. I'm less happy with Tesla as a company and Elon as a person, but I am very happy with the Model S as a car. It is an incredible car. There's no other car that I want right now, even with all these new options. One of the things I like so much about the Model S is I love that it's a car-shaped car and that it has an absolutely massive cargo capacity because it is a large car-shaped car with a giant lift-back trunk. That is something that I think only the the Taycan even come Taycan. How do you say it, John? Is the right way? I don't know. I always forget. I'm pretty sure it's it's like, it was tie, like tying your shoe and con like uh, con man. Uh, but I don't remember. All all I know is that it's not the any of the obvious five ways that occur to you to say it. I'm right. pretty sure it's maybe it's. Oh God, I think it's Taycan. Anyway, we talked about it on this very show. When, That's why when I Porsche. Asked you. <laughs> when Porsche officially told us how it was, but none of us remembered it, and now we just do whatever the first thing comes into our head is. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like I think Porsche should be a, a used to Americans mispronouncing all their names. Anyway, so that I think is is what comes closest to what I'm looking for, but it is worse at being a car shaped car with a massive cargo capacity than the Model S is. Like I, I know it's better in other ways, according to some of the reviews, but it's worse in that way. And so I actually. Still, I'm very into the Model S for what it is, the size and shape and cargo abilities that it has. Because of that, I'm not really shopping around still. Um, But, you know, I still have another couple of years before this lease runs out. uh, So I'll see what happens then. And by the the way, 
we we talked about many of the alternatives to this in an extended uh, bootleg uh, version of the thing. Uh, that some people are upset that that they didn't get to hear that. Oh, I have to become an ATP member to hear that. That is absolutely the type of thing that we have always cut from the show. You've always been missing that, whether you knew it or not. <laughs> we always talk about crap that does not make it into the episode. Way after the real episode ends, right after the after show ends, you've always been missing that. But now, if you become an ATP member, you have the option to get a recording of the live stream, and you can actually go back and listen to that if you care about it. So you shouldn't feel like there's suddenly something behind a paywall. This wasn't even behind a paywall before. It was invisible to you unless you were there at the live recording or you had someone who recorded the live stream. So anyway, I w- I, hopefully, Casey, we can find that for the show notes. If you want to hear an extended discussion of, what was it? The uh, I can't even remember the name of it. What the hell is the name of that company? The Lucid Air? Yeah, the Lucid Air. If you want to hear a discussion of that and a long extended discussion of Marco saying how he still likes Tesla. No, no, no. I still like the Model S as a car. Very different from I like Tesla the company or Elon Musk the person. Yeah, yeah. Shorthand. We were talking about like all the advantages and disadvantages of the the drivability and the charging network and this promised car that is not yet shipping and what it supposedly has. And since then, Tesla has had an event about their advances in battery technology that could change the equation again because the Lucid Air was exceeding Tesla's current stats. But then Tesla comes out with their new technology that says is going to give their cars more range. Anyway, if you want to hear that, atp.fm slash join you can go find the old bootleg and then find that segment and hear us talk about it way more than any person should ever want to hear us talk about it <laughs> which is why it gets cut from the episode and has always been cut from the episode You're welcome. yeah exactly <laughs> all right thanks to our sponsors this week squarespace customer io and express vpn and we will talk to you next week now the show is over they didn't even mean to begin Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental John didn't do any research Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter You can follow them E-Y-L-I-S-S, so that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O, A-R-M, E-N-T, Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C, U-S-A, Syracuse, it's accidental. I want to understand how USB-C works, and I don't mean like the ones and zeros way, but let me try to explain. I have a USB-C to USB-C cable coming out of the back of my iMac Pro, and it stays connected to my iMac Pro always. And approximately half the time I plug in my iPad with like the Magic Keyboard, you know, directly into the Magic Keyboard, or sometimes the iPad itself, about half the time the iPad will charge, and about half the time it just sits there. I have always left the the one end of the USB-C cable plugged into the iMac Pro, always. And only about half the time will it actually charge the iPad. But every single time, if I disconnect the the iMac Pro side, so it's already connected to the iPad and I say, oh crap, it's not charging again. I disconnect the iMac Pro side and connect it again, immediately the the iPad starts charging. I know very little about this, but I know enough to know that there's some amount of like, 
implied priority based on what's getting plugged into what first. But I can't for the life of me understand why this only works sometimes. So can one of you please please explain to me, how does USB-C work? Because apparently I don't get it. Does anybody know how USB-C works? Touche. Well, I don't, I don't think you need to know how quote-unquote USB-C works here. But what the, thing, the main thing you have to know is that on both sides of this, but especially on the iOS slash iPadOS side, there is software involved in the successful completion of the task that you're expecting to happen, which right, is what right, you right. want to see happen is you want to see a little lightning bolt appear over your little battery icon and you want to see charging mm-hmm. begin. Mm-hmm. That is not, strictly speaking, just a thing that is defined in the, the USB spec straight ahead. There's you know the, the software on both ends. Now, we know how reliable the USB stack is on macOS these days, right? And then on the flip side of that, even on iOS devices, I very frequently get into situations where I'll plug, say, my phone into a computer with the lightning cable in this case. And you'll be like, why is my phone not charging? And then eventually, 37 seconds later, oh, boop, boop, <laughs> and now it's charging. The software part of it is what I would blame for all of this. It's a, it's a combination of the USB spec and power delivery, but also mediated by software control over charging, specifically on the iOS side, combined with the software bugs in the USB stack on the Mac. I think that totally explains this problem entirely. Like that, that because there's software on both ends and because we know there's weird bugs on both of those things, uh, you know, you have that happen. And the, the thing that annoys me, speaking of connecting iOS devices to Macs, is one of the reasons I'm frequently connecting my phone or my iPad in rarer cases to my Macs is to get the photos off of them because Apple doesn't understand how families work and I have to do that whole photo library <laughs> thing, right? Um, and so what I want to happen is I want to plug in my phone and you plug it in and I have I, I have the thing turned off where like I never want to plug in my device and have it automatically launch photos or music or whatever as i hate that so that's all turned off so i have photos already launched it's in the foreground i plug in my phone and photos reacts and if i click on the device in the sidebar it says please unlock your iphone or please unlock your whatever by the time i see that screen most of the time my phone is already unlocked and it will continue to say please unlock your phone for like 67 seconds it will just sit there and it will just say, please unlock your phone. It took me so long to figure out that I shouldn't keep disconnecting and reconnecting my phone and unlocking and doing all that stuff. Instead, I should just sit there and wait. Because even though it says, I can't do anything until you unlock your phone, please unlock your phone, it's lying. It's totally lying. <laughs> you just let it sit there. And eventually it says, oh, I guess your phone's unlocked. Here, here are your photos. It takes forever <laughs> because I have a ton of photos. But the UI absolutely lies to you. And if you if you take it seriously and try to solve the problem by unplugging various ends and putting it back in, trying to launch the Photos app on your phone before you unlock it, and just it's forget it. It's all filled with lies. And I think that's the same type of thing where it's like, I made the hardware connection. Why is the software thing not happening? It's because this, on both ends, there's some kind of software mediation of the hardware connection. And to get all the dots to connect and the, the stuff to flow takes a little while. I think Photos really isn't aware that my phone has been unlocked because the phone hasn't told it through whatever software-mediated protocol be- that, that exists between Photos itself specifically and my phone. So, yeah, that's... And I can't imagine how regular people deal with this because if they're staring at a screen for a minute that says, please unlock your phone and their phone is already unlocked, they're going to do the same thing I used to do, which is like, I guess I'll unplug it and try replugging. And you will never make it that way. You have to just unlock it, plug it in, unlock it and put it on your desk and walk away. And then come back later and be like, oh, there's my photos. Yeah, it's just frustrating. That being said, even though USB-C does have its problems, and Marco, you've been banging this drum for a while. I am very ready for the all USB-C lifestyle. Bring on the iPhone 12 with USB-C. I'm ready. 
Oh, that would be amazing. I, honestly, I, it's not going to happen. I don't think so either. They're just taking away all the cables. Isn't isn't that the predominant rumor that it's, the iPhone will never go USB C? It'll go right from Lightning to nothing. That that was one of the rumors. I haven't heard about that recently, but I, I'll tell you one thing: if, if that is the plan, I, I'm not excited about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think that was the rumor for this year, but I think it was like, nope, that's the future. It's going to be Lightning, 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 Lightning iPhone 12, and then all of a sudden, nothing. Yeah, I mean, you know, Apple changes their mind sometimes on things, and sometimes these rumors are wrong, and and so who knows what will happen. Mm-hmm. But I I think the most likely scenario of for this year's iPhones are Lightning. Like, I don't think they're going to change that. I I wish they would. I wish they would go USB C, but I I just I'm not, I don't have high hopes. Yeah, I think that the iPhone 12 case already leaked, didn't it? I I tried to save a link to it. Um, so I always like to save the link to those leaks just so when the phone does come out, I can look back at them and say, was this leak right or not? <laughs> but the cases have leaked for most of the iPhones for the past many years, like the actual literal part. And if you look at it and then the phone comes out and you look at that part's leak, you're like, yep, that was it. You're like, you look at the iFixit down, and you can tell like the, in, the inside little flanges are all exactly the same. It's like totally leaked. So I, but, I don't, but I don't recall in that leak, if, if that leaked uh, case had had USB-C, it would have been a big to-do and there was no big to do. I think it was just like, yep, flat sides. Here it is, iPhone 12. I am all in on the flat sides too, though. Yeah, that's true. Like, I'm kind of dreading the flat sides. I know we haven't talked about this too much, but I've, I've been talking about it in the context of the iPad. I always have cases on my phones, and flat sides make for fatter cases, right? The eh, slim, still. you know what I mean? Like, that's why I was talking, that's why I mentioned on Twitter, like, I was thinking, like, what it would be like to have an iPhone 12 bumper, right? Because flat sides, hey, you can put bump. You can put a bumper on a flat side thing, and that you know gives you some protection with a little bit slimmer of a case. But it just it does make it fat. I don't know. I'm I'm probably not going to use. This is my year, by the way, which is why I care about this. I'm getting the iPhone 12 or whatever when it comes out. Yeah, congratulations in advance. Yeah. So I don't I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I don't know how. And, and the thing is, I won't be able to just go to a store and feel how they feel in the cases. It's just I'm going to be buying this thing blind and crossing my fingers. Yep, that's what we all do usually. <laughs> We're yeah. not patient. Not not most of us anyway. 